Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, focused compounding on air with my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Very good, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hope everyone had a good weekend. It is Monday, April 13th, and Mondays is our new question and answer day. So if you want to be able to ask a question uh, for Jeff in the future, uh, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound, or if you're watching on YouTube, uh, leave a comment down below. I will cue them for the next time that we do a question and answer, and then we will answer them on the podcast. So if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, check out all the content that we produce out there on the internet, uh, and the best place to get that is uh, through my Twitter at Focus Compound. So Jeffrey, we have, I think, a ton of questions to go over today. Um, so we'll uh, try not giving a 60-minute response to each question, but we will uh, try banging out as much as we can. And <clears throat> the first question says that you recently said in a pat and um, in the recent past uh, that you were too eager to be 100% invested and invested in subpar companies. How should an individual investor decide how much cash to hold? And then he said, "Are there any macro indicators? Just holding cash." when no quality business can be bought with a margin of safety. So I think he's pretty much asking, you know, how do, should he structure, you know, being fully invested versus not fully invested? Um, how should he think about that? Well, for an individual investor, there is a cheat for this one that makes it so you can be fully invested at all times and not buy any subpar companies. It's not a uh, hmm. approach that's available for professionals. But so what an individual investor can do is let's us assume you're saving some amount of money every year, let's say $10,000 every year. So if you're saving $10,000 every year, all you have to do is buy one stock a year and then just hold it. If you do that, then you're going to be diversified over time and you're never going to have to find more than one stock at a time. You can do that as an individual because you're not being measured uh, year by year. So you can have a terrible performance one year. It doesn't matter because you have $10,000 more to invest the next year and it'll work out over time for you. For a, someone running a portfolio, though, you're often going to have to have a certain number of stocks um, for clients, and that's usually going to be uh, not a small number. We've kept to a really small number, but even then, people are going to want to have more than, you know, want to have five or more stocks at once. So I think getting started up is usually the problem. Uh, I did hold fewer stocks when investing for myself and more cash than I have in the past when investing for clients. Recently, we've held more cash but that's not what we did at first. So I would say it's hard to find a bunch of companies at once. It's not usually that hard to stay fully invested if you just give yourself time to find each stock. So the, the real problem is finding a bunch of stocks in the same year, the same quarter or whatever. Cool. Um, that was a good question. Next question comes, uh, what does Jeff think of the method that Buffett used to justify the overvalued market in 1998 from the Forbes article? So we could actually pop that open. Maybe is it the GDP? Uh, measure yeah. that he talks about a lot. I'm assuming it's the GDP measure. Yeah, he's talking about GDP right here. Look at that guy. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm assuming that's what it is. What are your, what's your thoughts on that? Um, so using the stock market, uh, total stock market capitalization versus GDP, um, you can do it. I, I don't know that's more accurate than like Schiller P <laughs> or something like that or um, price to peak earnings or price to sales. All of those work pretty well. Um, the advantage of GDP is that it doesn't move around that much. So things like book value, price to sales, um, uh, market cap to GDP, and also price to prior peak earnings um, are all pretty good measures. And you, you could use all of them to, to tell. It usually doesn't matter which one you're using. They'll all tell you that the market's expensive or cheap at, at the same time. Um, so like if I say something like the Schiller P isn't that low, um, people may say, well, but the Schiller P isn't the perfect measure that you could use or whatever. But usually that means also the price to sales is pretty high too and things like that. So um, it, it's an okay measure of doing it. It's, it's a really easy way of doing it. Uh, I think, you know, for academics and stuff, there's probably better ways of doing it, but it's very simple. And uh, it gave the right answer then. Um, somebody wants to know how many times have you read The Art of the Deal and how many basis points of improvement has have you gotten from reading the book? I have never read The Art of the Deal. Have you ever read any of Trump's books? Uh, I have not read any of the book. No. Got it. Has not read The Art of the Deal. Uh, do you all plan on changing strategy one day or always staying relatively small AUM to maintain this style of investing? 
Uh, we do plan to stick with the same approach. Our approach is overlooked stocks, not necessarily very, very small stocks. Um, we have invested in some larger stocks as long as they have very low um, share turnover. So we were invested in a stock, which by the time we sold it or something probably was over a billion dollar market cap. But actually, it's happened twice that we've had a stock that was like a billion dollar market cap, but the amount of float would have been lower or something. So um, I would say our eventual AUM depends on if I can find things in other countries and also and we've talked a little bit about this off the air, but I don't think we've talked about it on the air. If we can find things to invest in, for example, in the fund, as opposed to managed accounts, that um, we can stay invested in, then that doesn't really present a problem for growing AUM. Uh, AUM uh, size really depends on money that you need to reinvest over time. So if we buy something and say you put $10 million in something and you know that you can keep it for a long time, you don't really, that $10 million doesn't really cause a problem for um, approaching a cap to AUM of what you think is appropriate. But if you're trading in and out of things more frequently, it's what you need to find a new home for money. That's really the problem. So um, obviously micro caps go up to a few hundred million. So, you know, there's no problem until you get to about that level. I've said before that as a rule of thumb, a fund can usually invest in stocks that are about the same size as the fund or smaller um, or larger. Um, once you, the fund gets over size, a certain size, then usually you can't invest in stocks that are below the size of your fund. So if you have a $500 million fund, it becomes difficult to invest in stocks that are under $500 million or something. That's a good rule of thumb to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. How do you think about inflation and how are you positioned for it? I've gotten a ton of questions about this lately. I don't think much about inflation. Um, People, you know, value investing and stuff like that has been successful in the 1930s and 1940s, successful in the 1970s and 1980s. It's possible to have periods of um, almost no inflation or deflation and if it to work out and periods of inflation. Um, inflation is bad for all stocks. It, it is worse for bonds, but it's it's not good for stocks. And so um, your real returns will tend to be lower, but you just do the best that you can do. So um but your real returns can be pretty bad in a depression type situation too. So, uh, which sometimes accompanies deflation. So, um, we, it's something that we think about in terms of picking stocks is something that I'm a little more willing to buy into a company that I think can raise prices more. Um, but I think I've said before that really depends on what you're getting, um, sort of what you have to pay up for. So you're not going to see us buy things that are kind of popular hedges against inflation because those kind of tend to be expensive. So um, I, th I think we could work fine in either environment and I don't predict one or the other. Got it. Um, uh, so it sounds like this guy's proposing a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. He says, you are a shareholder of a small sub S bank earning relatively high returns, 1.7% return on assets, 17% return on uh, ROAE. Uh, maybe like return on equity. Uh, your choices: A, milk your one town indefinitely. B, move into higher growth markets. Grow the asset base faster than GDP. Dilute return ratios. Earn more actual money. Um, I mean, the theoretically correct answer is that it would be depend on your uh, cost of capital and whether you're creating value over time. I think the average um, financial institution in the U.S., if you go back over a really long period of time, has earned higher returns than any other um, sort of uh, kind of business, I guess you could say. If you're saying like an industrial or something, they've tended to earn more than that. So on average, they've earned probably between 7 and 8% real. So you add, say, 2 or 3% inflation, you're talking about 10% or something. So in theory, um, I'd say banks, if they can earn more than about a 10% return on equity, should keep growing. And um, it would make sense. So if you're earning a 20% return on equity or 17 in this example, um, as long as you, your incremental one uh, continues to be always above 10%, then it would make sense. Once it drops below 10%, it, it makes less sense. Got it. Um, uh, we must have went over this last time. Uh, but somebody asked, how is running other people's money different from running your own uh, in regards to portfolio construction, large, small, illiquid, etc.? Uh, time horizons, cash, geography, time horizons, incentives. Biggest lessons Jeff has learned from managing other people's money. Um, uh, I, I don't know what the uh, biggest lessons are. Uh, the 
the difference, which I was talking about with someone recently, is um, sometimes, I guess, there's a reason why Warren Buffett ran a partnership without revealing any of the actual positions. Um, there is some disadvantage to revealing positions, both in terms of uh, getting ideas out there and stuff, but also because of things like, say, net nets. So net nets are very easy to carry out a net net approach on your own, and net nets outperform anything. So as a group, net nets are going to perform outperform any asset class or anything like that. So um, they are what you should be invested in, right? But they are the kind of thing that if you put in a portfolio and people can see the individual stocks, they're going to talk to you about them and ask why those stocks and what what if this happens and what if that happens and things like that, you know. Um, so it, it is something that I think is. It, it, it is an issue. It's why it, it's a big part of why Buffett didn't do it. Um, we don't, I mean, I don't talk to clients much about um, anything like that though. So I, I haven't found it to be, I mean, what have you found about running people's money that's different than you expected? Well, it's, um, I mean, look, we, I think the way we set up focus compounding is probably different than most managers because people hear from us so much and we don't do any active marketing other than putting up content. So I guess you could think about it as, um, I mean, any outbound marketing other than content. And from there, we don't even, it's not like we pitch people or cold call people or anything. Every one of our clients has been I guess what you would call um, inbound marketing and where they self-select us because they're listening to the podcast or they've been following Jeff for a while or they follow the website. And I guess the way that we invest makes sense to them. Um, not saying that, you know, the way that we invest is right for everybody because it's obviously not. Um, just like other people's strategies aren't, you know, meant for everybody as well. Um, but I think it really comes down to just really choosing the right clients um, because, you know, what I was originally thinking when reading this, um, you know, was managing client expectations and having to, I guess, deal with that when it comes to like gyrations of the market or volatility or stuff like that. Um, but I think at the same time, we've been so far lucky because every single one of our clients self-selected us because they like the way that we think about investing. And it seems like they understand it more maybe, um, mm. or the, or they understand our strategy more. And, you know, every time we have conversations, I have conversations with clients and this was maybe a learning curve on my end and still is, you know, obviously you learn all the time. Um, it's really just choosing the right client and being okay with, I guess, saying no to individuals if it's not going to make sense, right? If you're not a good fit for them and they're not a good fit for you, that's okay. Mm -hmm. There's an infinite amount of capital out there. And I don't think you could put a, a price on. It's kind of like the return on brain damage for both of you, right? If you are speaking with the individual and you know your strategy is not right for them, you don't want to take them as a client. Um, and on the other side, if we know that a client's not right for us. We don't want to take them as a client either. And, um, you know, but I think it's, if anything, it's different when you're on a, a large platform, probably like we are, Jeff, wouldn't you say? Because I would say it's a double-edged sword. You know, you we, when you are doing well, everyone knows you're doing well. And when you're, you know, maybe going through a tough dry spell or whatever, everyone knows that as well. Mm. But... I guess Jeff's lucky that he has me to keep him insulated from that and I, and I'm bol bulletproof. But no, I would say it just the toughest part about managing other people's money is definitely the expectations. And because look, I mean, Jeff's very competitive. I'm very competitive and we want to do well for our clients. We want to do very well for our clients, you know, so we have high expectations for ourselves as well. So not only are you managing your expectations, but you're also trying to manage your clients' expectations. So I think that is what makes managing other people's money tougher as opposed to just yourself. Would mm -hmm. you agree with that? Yep. Cool. Um, next question. I know Berkshire has a 300% turnover today. Any thoughts on why? Uh, I have no idea. Jeff, any idea? Probably not. No, I don't. Um, next question. Net nets are rare. Recently, several have popped up, but they can get away from you before doing all the necessary research. Do you ever buy them and do the research later and sell if you don't like what you find? That's an interesting question. Um, no, I don't do that. I don't think it takes a very long time to research net nets. I think it's pretty fast. Um, I, I wouldn't say I exactly have a checklist, but I have a pretty clear idea in my mind of, um, 
what I'm looking for and what I'm trying to avoid. Uh, there's very little research that has to be done beyond that. There's not a lot of like positive research. It's all negative. Just making sure, okay, are the, is this a fraud? Are these people um, really running this business? Has this business made money over a long time in the past? Um, is the accounting good? Is the um, is there anything that's like clearly and immediately going to mean that this business in the future is completely different than the past? Stuff like that. It, it's very basic. Um, I don't really do a lot of positive research on net nets, trying to figure out which is the better one. Uh, kind of like what we went over before, just figuring out like, would you lend to them or something like that? So I think it's pretty fast. I think if you focus on net net for a day, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to make a decision in a day on it. Got it. Um, it says return on invested capital with or without goodwill and acquired intangible assets for serial acquirers. Uh, it, it depends if they're truly a serial acquirer, if they're like Bunzel or like Transdime or something you add it in. But if they're, um, we sometimes say serial acquirer, we're talking about like an ad agency, like Omnicom or something. In general, they don't really buy that much during the, uh, the a given year. So in those cases, no. Um, but yeah, for ones that buy all the time, yes. That's a very common question we get when it comes to return on invested capital. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's very, very common. Um, have you ever looked at NATH, which I just double checked to make sure that's Nathan's famous Inc. Yes. And it says $250 million market cap. This is a... One billion dollar brand, Jeff. We looked at this company not that long ago, right? I mean, yeah. not not very seriously, but just kind of you know looking for fun. And I don't remember it being two hundred fifty million dollar market cap. Um. Well, okay. So if you look at, do you have quick FS for Nathan's? Yeah, yeah. So they recapitalized. Um. So if we look at their, you're logged in, right? Yep. Okay. So if you look at their balance sheet, I think we can look at something here. So if we look, what is their long term debt? Let's see. Long-term debt, 145 million. Okay. And then their cash, 75 million. Okay. And then it looks like they have any investments. No, no investments. Yeah, 75 million. Okay. So, and then we look at their market cap on the overview page. And 256 million. Yeah. So it's really like a 325 million or something. Um, a little bit more than that. Uh, enterprise value. Uh, I don't know. I, I looked at it. and It looks interesting um i'd have to learn more about it uh you know i i actually have it written down here as a thing to look at um recently among some other stocks it's among 10 or 12 different stocks that are under 300 million dollar market cap that are kind of interesting by which i mean they're generally having higher earnings each year for the most part um they are growing by an amount that means they could probably double the size of the business in about 10 years. You can see that with the revenue and stuff like that there. And the return on invested capital is high enough. So I looked at maybe 500 stocks over the weekend and I have about 15 written down as interesting and Nathan's is one of those 15, so. How did they recapitalize? Like what happened? Uh, if I remember right, it was a borrowed and then a special dividend, but I, I would know exactly, I'd have to look to see if that's exactly what happened. Uh, you can actually look in the, let's look in the cash flow statement to see what happened. Okay. Did they do a dividend? Yeah. In 2015, they paid out. Am I reading that line right? In 2015, they paid out a dividend, which was large, and at the same time borrowed money. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it looks like they borrowed 135 million and paid out 115 million. Yeah, and if you remember, Transdime did that a couple of times, and I didn't like it. Um, you could do if you type in TDG, we could just show Transdime where they did. Um, and by the way, since we talked Transdime, we should just point out for. Full disclosure purposes, Transdime has borrowed a couple times. They they did two bond issues since we did that episode about them, so they wow. have been able to borrow. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the dividend and the debt, there's some times where they're kind of even, like they're raising a bunch of debt and paying a dividend at the same time. It's a very private equity type maneuver. That's what you would do with a private equity company. Um, so in general, when you see that, it means that it's being run like a private equity company, but publicly, like an LBO that's public. Got it. Well, if you need any scuttlebutt on Nathan's, um, I, I want to go eat some hot dogs. <laughs> All right. um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Uh, does having large institutional investors or hedge funds invested in a company you're looking at matter when considering an investment? Um, I would say not necessarily. I mean, we do overlook stocks. So generally, no, we don't want that. Um, but I, you know, I'm okay with it. Um, we've invested in some things where, or we've looked at some things where it would be meaningful investments for someone else, although a very small 
type fund or something. But in general, we avoid things that institutions own a lot. We're looking for more inefficient stuff. Um, let's see. What are your favorite stock screeners for domestic and international stocks? Uh, well, I create my own screens for stuff, so I don't really use screens that other people have done. Um, so that's about it. <laughs> what do you think of MOPs, tanker stocks, and refining companies? Uh, I, I don't really ha have a comment on them. Um, we've talked a little bit about oil stuff before, you know. Uh -huh. uh, would you recommend staying in cash as we are in unprecedented times? And should you keep money aside for a rainy day that may last for many years? Or would you recommend buying value stocks at their current prices? Um, I, I'd recommend buying stocks at the moment where you think they're really attractive. Um, so it doesn't really matter what the overall level of the market is if you can find things that, are, that you like. Um, the simplest rule is uh, if you can find an above average business in an above average industry that's selling for less than what a normal stock normally sells for, so let's call that like 15 PE, then you should use your cash for that. But other than that, when we get into things about like, well, it's not as good a business, but it looks pretty cheap, that sort of thing you have to be a little bit more careful about. So let's say if you could buy Starbucks at 13 times earnings, should you do it? Yes, you should use your cash to do that. Um, that sort of thing, the kinds of things that Buffett buys, right? If you can find them at less than about 15 times normal earnings and they're a better than average business. But when you get into things of like, well, I like this business. Uh, I mean, I like the stock price, but I don't know about the business and that sort of thing. That's harder to decide whether you keep cash or not. But as long as you find a good business in a good industry, um, at a lower than normal price, then you should buy it regardless of the market environment. Yeah. And I think that was, I mean, maybe not a misconception, but in past conversations we've had about this, it's not like we're saying we think you could time the market or anything like that. Every single decision that we think about for investing is it's based on the businesses, right? And the fundamentals of the mm -hmm. business. So if we say, oh, you know, things may get cheaper or whatever, that's, be, that's really <laughs> Jeff saying that he just hasn't found maybe businesses that are, are cheap right now based upon what they could, you know, look like in 2021, 2022. And if they're like solvent up to, you know, sol or to, you know, I guess weather the storm of what could potentially happen with the economy, yada, yada, yada. But really, he's not saying, look, I think the market's going to get cheaper. You were just pretty much saying that um, you just, I mean, look, we may have that opinion, but you're not going to not buy stocks because of that. You were just simply saying that you just haven't found companies on your criteria that you think are cheap today. Yeah, exactly. We, we don't just. I'm not the one thing I won't do is just buy stocks that are relatively cheap compared to other stocks on the argument that, well, everything's expensive, so you have to do it, you know, um, which sometimes in some years people say they say, well, nothing's been cheap since, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. You haven't gotten prices like that. Well, you, you know, eventually something will be um, in, in fact, sometimes in in um, expensive markets, there are occasionally cheap stocks that fit that criteria. So, yeah, that's it. It, it has nothing to do with timing the market. It's just that we're not going to just buy a relative value. We want something that looks absolutely attractive. Mm -hmm. um, do you have an opinion on TPL? Do you know what that is? I have no idea what that is. I TPL. I know that. Texas Pacific Land Trust. Yeah, I've been asked about this a bunch. Um, no, I don't have an opinion about it. We, it. It's an unusual stock, and it's attractive with some people. You can see why. It was originally just assumed to be essentially um, worthless land, basically. Um, and then they found that it had quite a lot of value. And if we look at the stock, I think looking at the stock chart would be the best way to do this. So let's see. If we look at like a five year chart or a max chart, it might be better. Yeah. Give me like a max chart. Wow. Yeah. So um, I don't have an opinion about it. Is the simple answer. I get asked questions about it all the time, and there's a reason why I don't. I just can't come to any sort of conclusion on to write intelligently about it, so I've never commented on it. But I've Got looked at it. it. Got it. Um, here's a good question: What's the best business Jeff has ever seen, and what made it so great? Um, that's a very good question. We could go to QuickFS to type in some names of businesses that are pretty good. Sure. So we we've mentioned Copart before, so we could just type that in, and people could see what that looks like. Um, that's obviously a very attractive business. Um, but there are others that I find pretty attractive. We could do Exponent. I think that's a very attractive business. Um, EXPO. Yeah, we do that one. We could show people that one. What do so, they do? So Exponent, uh, they, I don't know exactly how they describe themselves, but what they basically do is they provide expert testimony. 
So especially in multidisciplinary sort of situations. So like one of the ones that I know that they were involved in for the longest time, probably the one they build on for the longest time was the Exxon Valdez spill. So they provided scientific uh, stuff in there talking about um, for the responsibility of one party or another or something. Um, they're involved in other things too. I, I know they're involved in the case of uh, with the World Trade Center insurance stuff, whether the um, September 11th attacks were two events or one, which would change the insurance dramatically. Um, so uh, did one event happen or did two separate events happen, that sort of thing. Um, so all of that kind of stuff. So basically, if you think about legal cases and things in which a corporation is at risk of losing a lot of money or gaining a lot of money, um, what kind of science um, do they need behind them for the research for that and also just for providing the testimony? So, um, they, yeah, I would say it, it's a very expensive business. Uh, it seems never to be cheap, but it has always seemed to me to be one of the better businesses around. Um, I've also mentioned some other ones that I thought were pretty attractive a long time ago. Um, I think that FICO is attractive. You could type that one in. We could show that one too. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good example, especially because one part of FICO is even better um, than the overall business. But you can see obviously that um, returns are incredibly high. Now, this is an interesting example because you can see the return on invested capital thing, which is takes into account the goodwill part of it. But um, that's goodwill is for an acquisition they did, which isn't necessarily even a big contributor to their uh, good results. Um, but basically they have very high um, operating margins in the core business of credit scoring. Um, and there've been other companies like that. Uh, I invested in a company called IMS Health that came public again, but it changed a lot. So it doesn't really look the same. Um, and some other ones like that. Uh, you know, uh, then there are some kind of private companies and stuff that I think are pretty attractive. We've talked a little about some of them. Uh, they range from everything from like arcades and stuff like that to certain other businesses. Yeah. But what's the common theme in all these businesses? Like what makes them great businesses to you? The most important thing about any business, I would say, is pricing power. So can you raise prices without losing a customer? Um, and in general, all the ones that I said can. Um, I mean, they're a little complicated. Copart and stuff is a little complicated, but Exponent can raise prices. Um, I mean, uh, another good example is if you can find it on our uh, website, Focus Compounding, if you're a premium member, um, you can find that there's a write-up of Breeze Eastern. And Breeze Eastern was eventually bought by Transdyne. But Breeze Eastern is a really good example because, I mean, I could give lots of examples of this, but Breeze Eastern is one good example. Uh, we did some scuttlebutt where we talked to people who use the product. They, they make helicopter rescue hoists. So um, if you have a search and rescue helicopter, you usually buy a helicopter made by one of the big helicopter companies. There's maybe five of them in the world. And uh, then you then get the, you buy a part for it, which um, is usually the one that's chosen by the manufacturer in the first place to work with their um, model. They also do some things for, for aircraft too. Um, but in general, uh, people won't switch, customers won't switch. And um, we talked to some customers, some were not aware that you could switch. Many said it's very easy to switch, but I don't know why you would. There's only really two companies that do this. Um, they generally said, I'll pay any price that they charge me. And they said that one of my big problems is that they're very slow to fix parts for me. So if I have to reorder a part or something, I have to wait like a month. At one time, they seemed to be not even like keeping parts in inventory. They would just basically, they kept very few parts in inventory. They would just make them. Um, on demand when when needed. So that gives you an idea of just how dramatic the pricing power is. There are other things like that. I, I saw a company that I didn't invest in because it was very technologically based, but we asked around and we're like, well, if the price was five times higher, would you change what you're buying? No, we keep buying the same thing because over the entire project, you know, the product is maybe 0.5% or something of the total project. And um, if it was 2% of the total project or something, you'd still do it. Um, so it's what was that company called? I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it, it was, um, again, it's the sort of thing where the company that was doing the project, so usually a customer would pick someone, and then that someone would then pick what suppliers to use. And what was happening is that for a few key components um, that were very expensive, this product worked best with them. 
So if you like, we'll imagine that the stuff that they were using that was expensive was stuff from Intel and Microsoft, let's say, or something like that. Well, they were picking Intel and Microsoft. They weren't necessarily picking this company. But because of that, those big expensive parts that they were always working with, this part worked best with those things. And there's a lot of businesses like that. Um, so I would say anything where you have pricing power, pricing power, I think, is by far the most important part of a, a business. Um, so, you know, and that could be anything. It could be seized candy. It could be whatever. I mean, when Buffett bought seized candy, he said the last thing he said to the um, guy he put in charge there when he walked out was your price too low. That was basically his only advice. And then they raised prices for, you know, a decade or two or something. So, you, I mean, we talked about Games Workshop. Games Workshop has pricing power, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so those those things. I mean, there was another company we brought up that hasn't been that successful. But one of the things we asked was the uh, whether it was the CFO or whoever, like what their pricing policy was and stuff. And they said, well, I've been here 15, 16 years or whatever. And I'd say in June, we raise prices by some amount that we pick. And it's usually we pick a number that's more than inflation. Otherwise, I don't know how technical our approach is. Um, now they add other things to their bundle, you know, to give people to make it look like you're getting more for it. But yeah, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Uh, what do you think about Qualstar Corporation? Are you familiar with that? It's a $5 million net net trading below net current asset value after delisting de from NASDAQ, 40% insider ownership. Uh, we can look at it. I don't know it. Um, so I could just point out some things on the numbers about what would be good or bad. Okay, so the biggest problem on the numbers is the number of losses in the past. So without knowing more about this business, I probably would not touch it. So the reason for that is I would rather see, um, someone's asked me about this, would I buy a money losing net net? Yes, I would. Uh, what I actually don't want is a net net that's lost money historically. I'm very okay with buying a net net that's losing money now. That might surprise people. But um, an example for a non-net net of this that I did once is I bought the stock Nintendo. And Nintendo had made profits like 30 years in a row and then it lost money. And I bought it the year it lost money and that people knew it would lose money. Um, to me, that's more than what you should do is buy the thing that's made money every year for 30 years and now is losing money. Now is a good time to buy it, betting on the um, long-term past that it's had when people are a little too focused on the um, recent history. So I, I like to see that more. Here we have a bunch of losses in the past. If we look at the balance sheet, we could also get another idea for why I might not like this. Um, let's look at retained earnings. Yeah, so a big one for me is I like retained earnings to be positive. This company obviously did have retained earnings a long time ago, so they were profitable for a little while, but historically they've, cumula they've accumulated um, uh, negative earnings basically over time. So over their entire life cycle of this whole company, it's basically lost money. I don't really like to see that. Now there could be good reasons why they did in the last five years or so have all those losses, but I really prefer to see a big retained earnings number. If we could um, look at, what did we do? We looked at Keytronic or one of those. So let's do KTCC and look at their balance sheet to try to compare just to get an idea. Yeah, so let's look at their balance sheet. Uh, what's the retained earnings number there? 65 million. Right, and then let's look at the uh, overall uh, business size and stuff like the market cap and stuff. So yeah, they have debt and stuff. So there are issues there, but if we look, they've lost money this most recent year, right? Mm -hmm. But then in most past years, they made money. Yep. So I'm not saying I love Keytronic that it's the best business ever, but I'm saying these are more than the kinds of numbers I like to see for a net net. If you're gonna wanna buy something because it's cheaper than liquidation value, you wanna show that it, it's made money in the past and stuff. That's the most important to me, a history of making money in the past. Cool. Great explanation. How should investors think about insurance companies that are trading at discounts to book value during this crisis? Do zero interest rates hurt future earnings from bonds? If the insurer holds large amount, amounts of equities or controlled businesses, should one apply a big discount? Uh, so one, I, this is one I kind of missed out on, I think, because I mentioned that some things did look attractive a few weeks ago. I thought that some junk bonds, which you don't buy, looked attractive. I definitely thought some preferred stock looked attractive. I mentioned preferred stock I should have bought. It's up over 30% since when I should have bought it. So, um, which for a preferred stock is quite a big move, um, especially for one that's very safe. So um, I noticed that life insurers, um, that some life insurers got ridiculously cheap. So I noticed two perfectly good life insurers that were around 0.2 to 0.3 times book value. They're likely to have returns on equity around 6% or so normally. 
So that's very cheap. Um, if you own the stock forever, in theory, you could, you know, end up with a 6% return, but you can also end up with like a 30% return or something. Cause obviously if, if it's normally earning about a 6% return on, on equity and you're buying at an 80% discount to book, that means you're buying at a P of like three or something. Um, so yeah, they got very cheap, uh, applying discounts to insurers. Uh, the whole logic of that has to do with the underwriting margin basically so if an insurer has a positive underwriting margin that is a combined ratio below 100 all the time there's not really a logical reason why you should apply a discount to book it's the same sort of thing as like a closed-end fund or a holding company structure the only reason to apply a discount um, is so people will tell you that insurers should trade at discounts to book um, that closed-end funds should trade at discounts to book and that holding company should have a discount applied to them that's wrong that's not true they should only have discounts applied to them if their returns are worse than the market overall. So with insurers, it's pretty easy to tell because they consist of two parts. One, an investment portfolio, which in theory is regulated and stuff, so it could be a little different, but in theory should have returns that are similar to like a pension plan or something of companies you're looking at. Insurers may hold more bonds, less stocks, but in general, they'll get returns of a mix of stocks and bonds. Um, so if they have a combined ratio above 100, they almost always will need to have it discount apply to them. Uh, many life insurers have combined ratios above 100. Generally, life insurers are going to have to trade below book unless they have some very good distribution. Um, that's the only way to really get around it. So, um, however, niche property and casualty insurers are often um, deserving of actually uh, trading book value or even higher. I invest in a company, Bank Insurance, and you can see on the website where I sent a couple letters to the board and stuff and the whole um, case I was trying to lay out is why they shouldn't trade a discount to book. The company had a long history of earning 10% or higher returns on equity. It had a combined ratio of probably 93 or something, 92, 93 on average over the last 10 years or so, or even longer. And uh, in like 20 of the last 30 years had a combined ratio below 100. That's those kinds of things to trade at premiums to book generally um, or at book. So it really just depends on that. Uh, a great insurer, let's go to QuickFS so I can just show you my favorite insurer probably, which is PGR. Okay, so PGR trades at a big premium to book, right? Mm -hmm. And it should. Uh, so this company, uh, Progressive, has generally very good underwriting margins. Do they have the underwriting margin here for us? Uh, uh, not seeing it, no. Okay, but... Um, it generally has a low um, uh, uh, combined ratio. Its target is to not exceed um, 96 combined ratio, so 4% underwriting margin at all times. And then it also uh, has a very uh, large amount of uh, underwriting leverage. So it actually writes a lot of business versus um, its amount of surplus capital. That's different than like Berkshire, their approach is the opposite or like the company I talked about bank insurance, bank insurance wrote a very small amount of business versus their surplus. So if they, something went wrong, they could keep writing the same amount of premiums. Progressive can't do that. Um, if anything goes wrong where they suddenly have a high combined ratio, they'd have to kind of pull back in terms of premium growth and stuff, but they've been very good at, uh, with their underwriting. So anyway, I, car insurance is a pretty good business and I think Progressive is the best underwriter there. They traded a big uh, premium to book and they should. Cool. Uh, could it be smart to use long-term hedges to protect portfolio against tail risk? Uh, I don't know because it's like I don't know specific. It would. I don't know. We didn't uh, get those questions at the beginning of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your your answer to that is I don't know. I mean, like, like what about spending? I don't know, a hundred to two hundred basis points a year or something like that to, I guess, buy some. I don't want to say cheap, but you know, some tail risk, uh, hedges. Yeah. Are you for well, that? Are you guys, I mean, whenever you've spoken about hedges in the past, you've said it's something that you always have to do. Sometimes people, they get almost caught up in the trade, right? Yeah. I'm against hedges for a psychological reason. And it actually came up recently with CalPERS. Apparently CalPERS had a hedge on and took it off. Um, many, many people had hedges on against the, um, Japanese stock market in the 1980s and took them off. Um, so in general, I think that hedges that you have to keep putting on, which is the hedges that a lot of people would be using, are very problematic because you have a tendency to take them off at the worst time. I've seen companies do this. I've seen companies hedge oil, cotton, things like that. They take them off as soon as, right at the moment at which the hedge would actually be useful. So um, I, 
I would be very cautious about that. There are ways that you could hedge that don't require you to keep doing that. I think psychologically it's difficult to keep rolling something over. Um, and I'd be very, very cautious to assume that you're going to continue to do that. But if you can do something where you can buy protection once and you don't have to do it continuously that way, then that might work. But psychologically, I'd be very, very cautious about thinking that you're going to continue to experience a small loss every quarter, every uh, year or whatever that you're doing this and see that you're costing yourself a drag all the time and keep doing it and keep doing it because you're going to have to keep doing it for probably 10 years or something before it works. So you have to be aware of that. And most people will take it off. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you have time to read so many 10Ks and books? I don't know if that's to you or me. Uh, but, do you read a lot of 10Ks and books? I, I read. So this is the way that Jeff and I have structured stuff. Uh, we partnered with Willow Oak, who handles a lot of the operations. I spent a lot of my time working with Willow Oak, um, doing operation stuff. And then all my other time really goes to uh, growing the brand and marketing. Uh, we're trying to make a push on YouTube, really trying to grow the podcast, Twitter, everything. Um, and then Jeff's, you know, and then obviously uh, correspond with clients back and forth. And that pretty much frees Jeff up to uh, focus on investing. Uh, 100% of the time we've spoken about in the three things that Jeff needs to focus on is uh, investing, writing for the website and coming on the podcast to talk about whatever I want to talk about. I mean, people really, I I mean it when I say he has no idea what we're going to talk about until we hop on the call and I say, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is what we're going to talk about today. So I, I think the way we structured it, allows us to focus on what we're good at and it frees us up so we're not all running around uh like a chicken with its head cut off yeah i would yeah my my secret is uh, i basically don't use a phone i don't really use the internet i don't really watch tv um so i read i write and he, he um, lives in a cabin in the in the woods <laughs> far away from everybody um i also don't read newspapers or any, anything like that so yeah i i do um i don't know i i probably I think I. I don't you know. Exactly. You want to know what Jeff does? Let me let me give you the rundown. This is what this is what he does. All right, doesn't read the newspaper. Goes on his computer, checks his email for I don't know, maybe thirty minutes here and there, uh-huh. uh, a couple times a day, not all day, a couple times a day. Uh, other than that, he's sitting on a chair, reading. Yeah. Legs cross, one leg over, <laughs> reading, drinking coffee. Um, and then I'd say probably a good every, let's go every two hours. He gets up and he goes and walks and then he, and then he gets back and he goes just repeat. That's it. That's all he does all day. Other than maybe Starbucks get, um, his coffee, venti flat white with a a pastry. He always gets a pastry, (laughs) but other than that, it's just sitting there, never on his phone, never on the internet, other than maybe checking emails here and there. And yeah. some quotes and blogs, but majority of the time he's just sitting there, sipping some coffee, black. He likes the what kind of coffee is that? Death Wish coffee. He likes it yeah. strong. Even though you said you're not drinking coffee though right now, right? You're on a tea. Uh, yeah, I'm drinking tea right now. I've been trying to get off coffee. It hasn't worked as well. I told you I went on a diet and tried to get off coffee. The diet went perfectly fine. The coffee didn't go so well. The all meat diet, right? Yeah, I've been on that for a month and it's worked perfectly. That's never caused me any problem at all. It's the coffee that's the thing that's hard to get off. We were talking once at a, in an airport and we're, you were like, you know what food I can give up and stuff? And I said, I could give up any food. But you were like, could you give coffee? I said, coffee is a drug. It's not yeah. food. It's much harder to give up a drug than a food. Yeah, yeah it doesn't count. <laughs> so no. So I think, it, I think it really comes down to just uh, setting up your life, really. And I guess maybe we're fortunate where Jeff focused 100% of his time on investing. He doesn't have to worry about anything else. I worry about other stuff. Um, um, I, I don't spend hundred percent of my time on investing. A lot of it is content and thinking of ways, you know, to improve the reach and the brand and everything, uh, you know, correspond with clients, all that sort of stuff. And then we have a partnership with Willow Oak, which also helps free up my time, I guess you could say. So I think it really comes down to just setting up, um, you know, your life or the business or whatever to focus on what you're good at. Because look, here's at the end, uh, <clears throat> can't talk at the end of the day, I'm not, um, Jeff Gannon, and that's okay, and I'm okay with that. But I'm Andrew Kuhn, and I could create content and come up with unique ways to grow it and market and all that other stuff. So I think it works great for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Next question. 
would be very interested to hear your thoughts, if any, on FRC and HLT. I'm guessing that Hilton, uh, particularly in regards to safety, given the possibility of a looming recession. Okay, let's use quick FS. HLT. Yep, Hilton Worldwide. This is the stock that's going to go to zero, according to Bill Ackman, while he was buying it. Uh, well, it's one of many stocks that if it, that could go to zero if, it, yeah. if things stay shut down long enough. Absolutely, I live across from a hotel. It's it's not a Hilton, but I can tell you there's no one in it. <laughs> I mean, there's literally no one in it. Uh, so they they are open, but there's clearly very very few people there. So it's pretty creepy looking. Yeah, for sure. Any thoughts on it? Um, and then what's FRC? FRC. First Republic Bank. There you go. Oh, um, uh, I have no comments on First Republic Bank. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I don't, yeah, that, that's hard. Um, so the, the hotel thing, uh, yeah, like Bill Ackman's right. They could go to zero if, if there's problems that way. And I, I don't know what's going to happen with hotels. Hotels are one of those groups that I just don't know what's going to happen with them. It'll require, you know, different stuff that I don't know. Um, they're, they're really too hard to figure out. Um, hotels, certain restaurant things, certainly all airlines, any travel, things like that. Um, and, and then with, uh, with banks, I, I don't know. I have to look at the specific banks to understand them. There, there's some that have potentially some problems. Um, but for the most part, I think their, their earnings will be hurt more than they'll like run into actual capital um, problems. So I don't think you'll see as many banks risk going to zero as you'll see uh, hotels. I mean, do you think it really matters though on the balance sheet with these companies and their ability to access capital to withstand whatever? I get that question happen? a lot. Uh, I get that question a lot. Um, or is that, is that a 10 foot hurdle where you're just like, go for an easier play? I don't think it would matter what your balance sheet is. I don't think that if you're a hotel or something and there's continuous shutdowns, you could possibly survive. So I think it really depends on your past history of how much you could earn, and then you have to recapitalize it, honestly. I've been talking to a lot of people about this. If we go back to Hilton, we could just look at this to give an example of what I mean. So what I would look at more is um, than looking at the balance sheet or something is like, let's look at their operating profit over the last however many years and stuff. So if your operating profit before was that you had EBIT or EBITDA or whatever, of a few billion, in theory, that means you could put on several billion in debt, and um, that's a you know question of whether you uh, can do that and how safe that is. Uh, the same thing when people ask about Carnival or something, you, there's no way to do the math on how, the cash burn. I mean, if they stay closed long enough, eventually they'll be out of business. But people will lend to them on the basis of their past history, of their past profitability on the assumption that it will come back if you have high enough yield bonds and stuff. So um, what you saw with Carnival, they were able to borrow at like 12% or whatever um, with, with no earnings in sight. I mean, they have a, the government's told them they can't sail for months from now. Uh, I could give another example, movie theaters. Um, there's a movie theater company that presumably is about to file for bankruptcy, one of the biggest in the US. Um, and there's another one that I'm familiar with, and I happen to know some people who work there, and uh, I know how long they told them till they should expect to come back. It's much longer than the market expects. So, um, but those estimates already kind of priced, well, they're not priced into the stocks necessarily, but analysts have kind of looked at it and said, uh, I think there was an analyst that came out saying they expect box office in the US to be down 40% this year. So obviously, the way that works for a movie theater company is different from like a studio. You can't deal with that. There's no way to make money at a 40% decline from last year's box office when you do, you, you know, even when you take in the full year. So the, whatever money they get in terms of whether that's plain vanilla bonds, convertible bonds, preferred stock, convertible preferred stock, warrants, common stock issuance, whatever, it's all based on what their past earnings were and people speculatively being able to take a piece of that going forward. So I, all these things I said before, I think if they, they have to find a way to raise capital and to restructure things and stuff, and you kind of have to look at them on the basis of what they'll look like after they've um, done that. Got it. Um, given that you discussed Hunter Douglas, any opinion on HBH and HEIJM? No, I, or 
have slight familiarity with one of those two stocks and and looked at it and, and didn't really come to much of a conclusion one way or the other, but no. What do you think about entering the aero industry about companies like Aircap or AL that everybody throw out and have a good liquidity position? I, I think he's asking, what are your thoughts on Aircap? Uh, Aircap. Yeah, uh, it's a pass for me. Too tough? Too much uncertainty? Yeah, I, I never loved the business model all that much because of um there, there's certain things air cap is one of them but there's be careful things. this is another favorite jeff this is another compounder bro favorite be there, careful we already, we already talked about transdime be careful there, there's certain companies uh certain banks certain companies like air cap certain things that are reits um that i worry about because i do worry that although they can have a good run for a long time they can get into a situation where it's hard for them to survive under certain conditions. And I think we're seeing those conditions right now with Aircap. So not that they can't figure out a way to get through it, but this is the issue in the business model that they have is what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. What would you look for on a private credit investment company that provides non-traditional financing to medium-sized companies' financial statements? I don't know anything about that. Uh, does Jeff have a view on recruitment companies at the moment? Several European companies have had great growth and large cash balances and are gene uh, genetically trading at five to six times TTM EV to EBITDA, like Robert Walters, CPL, Synergy, et cetera? I don't know. I've, I've looked at some, but I can't figure out better than other people. It's a very strange environment for them. So, I mean, normally with this level of unemployment stuff it would be terrible, but it would be pretty good coming back from that. So, Snap judgment on PXGYF, please. Let's pull this up. Okay. We're giving the people what they want. Uh, PAX Global Technology Limited, OTC stock, $385 million, engages in the development and sale of electronic funds, transfer point of sale products worldwide. Uh, it's a foreign stock, if you can tell by the ticker and stuff. So where is it headquartered? Uh, uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. So um, six times earnings, five times EV to free cash flow revenue in 2009 has gone from 64 million to 565 million in 2018. Mm -hmm. So that these aren't fully updated. Right. Uh, thoughts? Um, it looks potentially interesting based on those numbers. Sure. So what's the business description here? It offers smart POS, ECR, countertop, wireless, mobile, pin pad, and multi-line e-payment terminals, as well as other accessories to process a range of electronic payment types, including signature and pin-based debit cards, credit cards, contactless radio, frequency identification cards, yada, yada, yada. So some sort of payment uh, processor. The um, financials look great. I just, that's not a... Um, business that I can uh, come to any conclusion about. That's just way out of my uh, circle of competence or whatever you want to call it. I've seen lots of companies in that kind of area and I just can't figure any of them out. Got it. Numbers look interesting though. Uh, we got more. Do you want to do more snap judgments? Uh, sure. So we already did TPL, right? Yeah. S-V-I-N. Okay. I think I know some of these, but type these in. So. Uh, S-V-I-N. Yep. There we go. Okay. Yep. You got yep. it. Yeah. I know this vineyard company. Um, vineyards are way outside my circle of competence. So <laughs> he doesn't even like wine. That's <laughs> no, good. Uh, uh, MMAC. That's a popular one. MMA Capital Holdings. Yeah. I've looked at this one before. I get asked questions about this a lot. Um, again, this is outside my circle of competence. <laughs> uh, FRG. What's this company? Franchise Group. Consumer services. And we get no business description. Uh, uh, without a business description, I can't really do this. All right, let's see. We got the Goog. Um, vitamin shop? That's I can't do vitamin shop. So No, it's not vitamin shop, is oh, it? Oh, okay. I, I don't. What's the business description here? Is it Vitamin Shop? Uh, engages in Liberty Tax Service, Buddy's Home Furnishings, and the Sears Outlet businesses. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I really don't know. Uh, I can't say about this. All right. Uh, let's see. I mean, the truth is for all, I would 
I would skip all of those. I mean, so when I say I can't say and stuff, I, I just pass because I can't understand those businesses well enough. Got it. Um, have you come across Fundsmith? I, yes. I, yeah. We I've come were... across both these companies, yeah. So Fundsmith yeah. is Terry Smith, and, uh, and um, uh, these are both UK uh, funds. So they are definitely not overlooked stocks. Uh, they're more like blue chip type stocks. I have looked at them and I think they're interesting. Um, some of their stocks are expensive. So, I mean, we could, if you go to Dataroma or whatever, I can show you Fundsmith at least. They have that. So. Like dataroma.com? Yeah, I think that's the website. So, yeah, if you go down to where it says Terry Smith, Fundsmith, it'll be down there somewhere. If you keep scrolling down, you'll find it. Um, there we are. Yep. So you can see what the biggest holdings are. So like I said, they're not um, overlooked, obviously. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I look at this one in terms of what industries they're in and stuff like that, the same as um, I would with uh, like Sequoia or something like that. Sequoia has a very good investor day presentation, uh, like transcript that I like to read, even though I wouldn't necessarily invest in the stocks there. In fact, some of these overlap. I believe IDEX would overlap, for instance, between those two funds. And um, there are a couple smaller stocks, not small, but there's a couple stocks in there that I do recognize and know a little bit better. Um, A.O. Smith, uh, what, what do we have there? Um, there's a couple on the bottom half there that I know a little bit. Um, they're all high quality businesses. That's about all I could say about them. The businesses are very good. Sometimes the price is a little expensive, but um, I like their approach, yeah. And and same with uh, with uh, the other fund that they mentioned there too, actually too, and the results have been very good too. Um, ha, uh, I, yeah, it's a little bit of a style thing. I wouldn't be surprised if coming out of a bear market that like deep value stuff does better than their stuff, but their stuff will do fine over the long term. Uh, can you elaborate more on changes in working capital regarding calculation of free cash flow? An example would be helpful. So we've done. I think we actually did a, a video on this where we recorded our screen where we calculate free cash flow and went through this whole process. Jeff, do you have anything generally to say to that? Uh, I always use, um, I mean, the easiest way to do this is just to only use cash flow from operations, which include the changes in working capital, which you'll always see for um, US companies. For companies in other parts of the world, it's a little bit different, but they'll also have it too. But U.S. companies, they'll always have it factored in. So I, I like to use that instead of something like EBITDA or something. You'll see some cases where I object to the use of EBITDA um, because I don't believe that their cash flow from operations have ever been as high as what they're claiming in EBITDA. Um, for some things, it's fine. Like if uh, you'll see a theme park, we'll say we use as our measure of um, free cash flow EBITDA minus CapEx. That's fine because a theme park doesn't have inventories and receivables and stuff um, or meaningful amounts of any of that. But for companies that have a lot of that, like, say, Tandy or something, you need to use cash flow from operations. It wouldn't be meaningful to use EBITDA at a company like Tandy, which is a, a retailer. So um, I, I would just steer away from using EBITDA and always focus in on cash flow from operations, which includes the changes in the working capital. Um, that's about it. Got it. And then last question of the day says, since you guys were discussing a watchmaker, why not take a look at HMI, grossly undervalued smart watchmaker, about to overtake Apple? Well, I mean, I can tell you why not. I don't know anything about smartwatches, and I can't bet on a company on the basis of smartwatch stuff. So, Have you ever looked at HMI? No, I've never looked at it. Let's see. But, I mean, I can just tell you there's zero chance that I'd ever invest in a company that's that is all about a smartwatch. Uh -huh. um, Got it. Um, so on the focus compound daily, well, first off, thank you so much to everybody for asking those questions. Be on the lookout next week. Uh, every Monday is our Q and a day. Uh, so I uh, included some different articles from the week, just some stuff that I thought was interesting. The, uh, production cuts for oil, they're going to reduce output by 9.7 million barrels per day. And then Jeff, one thing I thought was interesting, it really speaks to J.P. Morgan Chase, such a fan of the company. Uh, they're raising their mortgage borrowing standards uh, okay. as economic outlook darkens. And it says customers applying for a new mortgage will need a credit score of at least 700 and will be required to make a down payment equal to 20% of the home's value. So they're really you know, shifting gears there to, you know, I guess, be more conservative. 
Um, and I thought that was an interesting article. So take a look at all that stuff. Uh, but somebody had emailed into you. And of course, if you want to email a question to Jeff, click the link and you could send an email directly to him. Uh, and they asked, what's a fair price to pay for Omicom? And this is a company that we've spoken a lot about. But I thought this was a great lesson for a lot of people because you went through the actual valuation process. So to everybody that's always asking about how do you value stocks? How would you think about valuing this? Which PE do I choose? How do I think about this? How do I handicap it? Go to my Twitter. I tweet this out. I think this is a fantastic example by Jeff. We talk about Omnicom a lot. I think it's good um, that we do use a lot of the same stocks so people could also get familiar with it really just as examples, you know? Um, but Jeff, maybe Tell me a little bit about why you chose between one to 1.5 times sales, um, you know, as a valuation for Omnicom. Sure. So um, I actually put in a formula there. People love when there's formulas. They're always asking for a specific formula. We have. So one I'm saying this is a great example yeah. for people. The, the reason for using something like Omnicom, basically, or like I've used OTC markets or something, is it's very simple. Um, so you can write out a formula as if you're doing physics or something instead of how most companies would work where it cannot be that simple um, because what's happening is they're retaining earnings and there are all sorts of other things happening. But a company that just grows free cash flow over time without retaining earnings is much simpler to value as like a perpetual bond, which is sort of the perfect world of like a DCF kind of thing to value. So this so it makes it easy to use a practical example, which is really a theoretical thing. So yeah, the formula I used was 0.5 times the earnings yield minus 1% equals the inorganic EPS growth caused by stock buybacks. So what I meant by that is Omnicom um, probably dilutes its shares by about 1% a year is my guess. So uh, most people do something where they take stock options and like charge that off against earnings or something. I don't do that. I just assume how much they'll dilute and I take that away from your returns all the time. So I've seen companies that dilute by about 3% a year. So I would just assume if they're going to grow 10% a year, they're actually only going to grow your stock 7% a year because they're going to dilute 3%. So with Omnicom, they you adjust for the fact that they do about half buybacks, half dividends. Um, it's not exactly right, but it's close enough. And that's what I used. So you just take 0 .5%, uh, 0.5 times the earnings yield minus 1% equals how much EPS will grow due to stock buyback. So if we go to maybe like uh, get a quote on Omnicom now, we could probably do that with QuickFS. So I can give you an up-to-date thing on them um, to give you an example. So this is pretty easy if you get a calculator out. So 9.3 is the PE. So let's use my formula here. Yep. So uh, so we could do this a bunch of ways, but the easiest way for people will be 100 divided by 9.3. 100 divided by 9.3. Okay. So that's the earnings yield. It's 10.75%. Then we subtract one because I said that they're going to dilute by one. And then we have 9.75%. But remember, they're going to do half dividends, half buybacks is my guess. So now we multiply by 0 0.5. And there we go, 4.87%. So if the stock stays at the same price it's at today, which as of this recording is what, $57 a share? Yeah, it's 56.80. Okay, so um, they will grow their earnings uh, by 4.9% a year, by 5% a year through buybacks. Um, it's actually, I simplified the math again, the actual rate, just so people know, if you buy back 4.87% of your stock, your actual increase in EPS will be greater than 4.87% because of how that works. It's actually one divided by zero point and then however far your number is below one. So it actually grows it faster. So if you get up like 4.9% or something, it'll actually grow it faster than 5%. But um, I exclude that because it's more complicated and confusing to people. So we just assume that it'll be your rate of buyback is actually what your growth will be. So you'll grow by 5% a year. So then we just say, okay, well, what's your discount rate? Um, so in a simple way, we can look at this. We can see what their, uh, QuickFS doesn't give us the dividend yield, right? Uh, it does not. No, I can find okay. that for you. Sure. So if we just pull up the dividend yield on Omnicom, there's a really easy way to do this. 4.66. Okay. 4.66. So we have four, let's say we have about a 5% dividend yield. And we have about a 5% growth in the stock, uh, earnings per share. If you buy back 5% of your stock and your dividend yield is 5%, you can basically just do this math on like a DCF type basis, but in your head, you don't have to do an actual DCF. You see that you have about a 5% coupon and it's gonna grow by about 5% a year. So if you assume that the stock will not grow at all organically, but it also won't shrink organically, then what you get is a 5% coupon that grows at 5% a year. Um, that will obviously give you returns that will be enough without growth of any kind to give you about a 10% return. 
So on that basis, if you're looking for like a 10% return, we're already at that price here. So you could say that you're at that price right now. However, if we go to the write-up that I did, I get a number that's higher than that for the value of the company, probably. I, I pick a number, which I think is, I give a share price number. I think it's in the 70 to $100 uh, yes, range. That's what you said. Yeah. And there's reasons for that, but basically it means I don't think that I, so the way to think about that is either I think Omnicom will grow slightly organically in nominal dollars, not necessarily in real dollars. So it could grow one, 2%, whatever. But the other factor, which is the bigger one here is I don't think that the um, market will grow 10% or so. So you have to compare it to something and I compared it to um, the market. So if you use like say an 8% discount rate or something, assuming that's what the market will be, then you get a higher price. Um, so it depends. And I get a number there that I talk about where I said, for instance, if Omnicom could grow organically by as much as 3%, then that would shift the value up to 1.4 uh, times sales, right? So you can get a number as low as like one times sales, but you can also get a number as high as like one and a half times sales, depending on exactly how fast you think it'll grow, 0% or more like 3% or something. So um, you can just look at that. It goes into a lot of it's simple math, but a lot of math throughout the whole thing, just different estimates of what it might be. And it helps you kind of figure that out. Um, it, I mean, you know, someone just wanted it in a lot of detail about what it looked like. And so I just went through the numbers on it. Um, I also, that's how I do intrinsic value sort of things. So in fact, I think I said, if you go all the way to the bottom of that, I think I give an estimate for what I would pay for it though, which is different. So if you see, yeah, so I said the last paragraph there, is that I think the a fair price to pay would be seventy to one hundred five dollars a share, given that I would buy it at forty five dollars a share. So that's just a way of thinking about how I think about these things. I'm trying to get an honest intrinsic value estimate. If someone said, you know, a buyer and seller can't decide on this, it's, it's not publicly traded. How do you appraise it for them? It's in the seventy to one hundred five dollars a share range, but. If you're buying it, you want to take the bottom half of that, the, the bottom end of that range, which is $70. And then you want to apply further a margin of safety in that. So I would say where it gets really exciting as a stock is like $45. Because mm -hmm. that's obviously your margin of safety. Right. That's about a one third margin of safety below the bottom end of $70. Mm -hmm. So uh, just because I say something might be worth 70. So if someone hears me say it might be worth 70 to $105 a share, right? Then people are probably thinking, oh, does that mean I should buy it at any price up to like 85 or something? Because that's about the middle of that range. Um, no, I, I would say you want to buy it at a discount to the bottom of that range. But I think the ranges are always about that big. And Omnicom should be easier to value than most stocks. And yet, if you look, that's a fairly big um, you know, band of intrinsic value. But there's not many companies where I would think I could be closer in estimating intrinsic value than like 70 to 105. It's always going to be kind of wide ranges like that. Got it. Cool. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Again, check this out. Go to my Twitter at Focus Compound. It gets tweeted out every single day. Also, join the email list if you want to get this directly in your email box uh, Monday through Friday. You could go to FocusCompound.com and enter in your email. Uh, this is the Focus Compounding Podcast. I want to thank you so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. The new schedule for the podcast going forward is Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then yours truly, that's me, is filling in the YouTube videos on Tuesday and Thursday. And I got a lot of content plan so i'm excited to do that i thank everybody so much for tuning in jeff and myself and we will see you on wednesday in the next podcast take care